0: Please be seated. Our scripture reading in the Old Testament begins in Numbers, the sixth chapter, at the twenty second verse, Numbers six, twenty two. Hear now God's word. And Jehovah spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel. Ye shall say unto them, Jehovah, bless thee and keep thee. Jehovah, make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. Jehovah, lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. So shall they put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Turn now to the thirty-fourth Psalm, Psalm thirty-four, which I'd like to read in its entirety. I will bless Jehovah at all times; his praise shall continue. make her boast in Jehovah. The meek shall hear thereof and be glad. O magnify Jehovah with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought Jehovah, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were radiant, and their faces shall never be confounded. This poor man cried, and Jehovah heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of Jehovah encamped round about them that fear him, and delivereth them. O taste and see that Jehovah is good, blessed man that taketh refuge in him. O fear Jehovah, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek Jehovah shall not want any good thing. Come, ye children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear of Jehovah. What man is he that desireth life? And loveth many days that he may see good. Keep thy tongue from evil, and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. The eyes of Jehovah are toward the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of Jehovah is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cried, and Jehovah heard, and delivered them out of all their troubles. Jehovah is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as are of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions, but Jehovah delivereth him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be condemned. Jehovah redeemeth the soul of his and none of them that take refuge in him shall be condemned. <clears throat> and our reading in the New Testament from God's Word is found in 1 Peter chapter 3 where Peter quotes a portion of the psalm that we have just read. 1 Peter 3, and our reading will be verses 8 to 12. Here again God's Word. Finally, be ye all like-minded, compassionate, Loving as brethren, tender-hearted, humble-minded, not rendering evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but contrawise blessing. For hereunto were ye called that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. And let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace to it, for the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears unto their supplication. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And thus far the reading of God's word. I have entitled this afternoon's message, God's Smile Upon You. And the wording uh, comes really from the Aaronic benediction that we read in Numbers, the sixth chapter. It's called the Aaronic benediction because it's the benediction that Aaron was commanded to teach to the priest and the way in which they were to pronounce benediction upon the people of God. We might take a look at that for just a moment. In verse 23 of Numbers 6, We see that Jehovah has told Moses that he is to speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. You shall say unto them. God instructs the priests how to bless his children. That only makes sense. The priests can't come up by their own imagination with a way of blessing the children of God. If it's God's blessing that's to be upon them, then it must be God who gives the instruction for blessing. And God says, this is the way you shall bless them. You are to pronounce what we today call a benediction. Sadly, in the Christian church, in our day and age, benedictions have become kind of passe. Uh, Many churches don't pronounce benedictions. They have closing prayers at the end of their service. and I, I don't wish to argue that the benediction must be the end of the service. The benediction, however, is an element of worship that's very important. It happens in the Reformed tradition usually to be at the end of the service. The benediction is the man who is ordained of God, standing as an intermediary between God and the people, pronouncing blessing upon them in God's name. No one has the right to just take it upon himself or herself, to pronounce such a blessing in God's name. Only those who are ordained pronounce benediction. The Old Covenant, we see the instruction given to priests to do this. And God gives the instruction because He says, this is the way, if you're going to bless the people for me, you're to bless them in the following fashion. A benediction, well, the, the term benediction means a good word. You're to pronounce blessing upon the people. And in verse 27... After the wording of the benediction is given, we read, So shall they put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. God says, In order to bless my people, you just speak his name over them. It's very significant. It isn't just a matter of saying, God be with you. That's my wish for you. But here the priests are to actually apply the name of God to the people. It is to be laid upon them. And that's why in the ironic benediction you'll find very prominent the name of God. All three of the parts of the benediction begin with the most holy covenant name of God, Jehovah. So we Jehovah, bless thee and keep thee. Jehovah, make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. Jehovah, lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And so shall you put my name upon the people. Jehovah, of course, is the Hebrew Yahweh, which the Jews, because of their superstition, did not believe in pronouncing. They uh, would substitute Adonai, Lord, in the place of that. And it comes over to us in English uh, with the uh, vocalization of Adonai and the consonants of uh, Yahweh as Jehovah, and um, uh, it's translated in the New Testament uh, often as Lord. Uh, in your Bibles, many people don't realize this, but maybe I should take just a moment to instruct you, in your Bibles where you see the word Lord, sometimes you'll find it printed in small capital letters. You've seen that you've wondered why that is sometimes Lord is capital L and then small case ORD but sometimes it's capital LORD but reduced size. This is a printer's technique that's been adopted for many years in English speaking countries. Where the name Jehovah appeared, Lord is found in your translation. This is what the Jews would say, Adonai, Lord. But to make it clear that this is not the word Adonai, but is rather Yahweh, then Lord is put in capital letters. So the ironic benediction is sometimes pronounced in English as the Lord bless you and keep you, and so forth. But whether it's the Lord, as your translation, or Jehovah himself, the importance of the benediction is that God's name is pronounced upon you. You bear God's third commandment, that we are not to take up the name of the Lord in vain. When we leave the worship service, we are to bear God's name upon us and his blessing for that reason and not take his name in a vain fashion to live in obedience to him. The ironic benediction is beautiful in Hebrew, by the way, the symmetry of it. The first, it doesn't come across in English as nicely, but in Hebrew you have three words for the first, six for the next, and nine for the next, and so it develops. It's supposed to be an unfolding of God's name and blessing. In the most general sense, Jehovah bless you and keep you. To put it more specifically, Jehovah make his face shine unto thee, be gracious to you, and then finally lift up his face, his countenance on you, and grant you peace. The climax of the benediction is that God grants peace to his people. And that peace comes, to put it in a figure of speech, because his face is upon them. The importance of God's face shining upon us should be appreciated in terms of this benediction. I think all of us know, I know, um, very recently, I, I know what it is to feel a sense of distance from God. Uh, a subjective feeling, sometimes of indifference, perhaps even of darkness, where you wonder about the favor of god and we 're not talking in an objective way where you can potentially say now i 've committed this sin, and I know i haven 't repented of it, and so forth, but even when we 've confessed or so forth, we just feel that we 're in a time of spiritual dryness or darkness, and we wonder if the favor of God is ours we uh, I guess if you were to put it in psychological terms, which I don't think helps a lot, but uh, we might feel out of sorts with our, with our life. Just Is everything okay? Does God care for me? Does he love me? Sometimes we feel perhaps that God has turned away from us. When we have feelings like that, you can understand the tenderness and the blessedness of this figure of speech, that God's face should shine upon us. That God should turn his face, turn his face to you. And the expression to have a shining face, I think in English, uh, idiom would probably be closer to be having a smiling face. That God should smile benevolently upon us rather than turning away from us. On the human level, not nearly having the importance of what I'm talking about in terms of God having a smiling face, but you know how important it is for a person to smile at you, don't you? You know the difference between going to someone who is a friend or someone who is important, maybe a boss. The difference between them scowling at you and smiling at you when you greet them. I mean, so much of our personal feeling is tied to the face of the other individual, isn't it? Would you like it to be said that God's face is hardened against you? Obviously, in your own human relations, you know what that is. When someone, you know, hardens their face against you, scowls at you, then you know that there's alienation. There's there's not acceptance. There's not a feeling of blessing and friendship there and support. You probably know what it is sometimes to be feeling nervous, to feel scared, and to have someone, you look into their face and they smile, and things just kind of clear up, don't they? There's someone who just in their facial expression, their demeanor towards you, has shown that they love you. They're supporting you. Sometimes, and remember this is the philosopher, sometimes that subjective feeling does more to persuade us about things than all the words in the world. To have someone have a smiling face for us. And so Aaron is told to teach the priest that when they pronounce blessing on God's people, the blessing is that God would smile on them, that they would know that experience of God's face being open to them and shining upon them for the sake of blessing and His name to be applied to them. Uh, The biblical image of God's face is used often for the favor of God Uh, God smiling in our direction. Let me just give some examples before we move on. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 4, verse 6. Many there are that say, Who will show us any good? Jehovah, lift thou up the light of thy countenance, thy face upon us. The prayer of the psalmist is that God, in the midst of others not showing him faith, God would smile upon him. Or Psalm 31, verse 16. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant. Save me in thy loving kindness. Psalm 67, verse 1. God be merciful unto us and bless us And cause his face to shine upon us. We're going to read more, but you begin to get the point. I mean, this is a common biblical figure of speech for the mercy and favor of God being on his people. Um, Look at Psalm 80, verse 3, where this actually becomes the refrain of this psalm. Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. In verse 7, the refrain, Turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be In verse 19, at the end, Turn us again, O Jehovah, God of hosts, cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. And one more example, Psalm 119, verse 135. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant, and teach me thy statutes. In all of these cases, the allusion to God's face shining upon the servant of God, the obedient one, the one who is being persecuted, that God's favor and mercy would rest upon him. The allusion of the shining face of God is back to the ironic benediction, the benediction that the priests were perpetually to pronounce upon God's people that the name of Jehovah would be theirs. And the name of Jehovah is pronounced in the form of God's face shining on them, God smiling upon them. Um, back in the uh, benediction, as we read it in verse 6, chapter, you notice that the result of God showing his face, the result of God's shining or smiling face is said to be grace and peace in Numbers 6.25. God make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious. And then in the next verse, God lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. God's grace is communicated in terms of his face shining, and the result is that we have peace with God. These blessings of grace and peace don't simply point to the absence of adversity in a person's life. They, pull to, they point to something much more positive. They point to uh, the fullness of God's richest blessing. They point to the loving kindness of God, to the forgiveness of God, to the prosperity communicated by God, to peace of mind within and social harmony without, and finally to eternal assurance of acceptance before God. Peace in its richest sense. Shalom, the, uh, the Jewish word and so... Um, made shallow, I think, by its cheap use. But the Hebrew concept of shalom is very important. The shalom of God be on you, because his name is there, and his face is shining. And it's with this background in mind that I would have us look at our New Testament text Then, in 1 Peter 3. If you would enjoy the shalom of God, if you would want to know that his face is smiling upon you, If you would enjoy peace with God, what must you do? Peter tells us by giving a series of exhortations in 1 Peter 3, verses um, 8 and 9, and then goes into a quotation of a psalm, Psalm 34, where the climax of that psalm is that God will turn his eyes and ears to his people, but set his face against those who do evil. And so if we would enjoy peace with God, if we would want his face on us rather than against us, then what should we do? Peter tells us, be like-minded, be compassionate, love as brethren, be tender-hearted, be humble-minded, don't render evil for evil, don't render reviling for reviling. But to the opposite effect, give blessing. For this is what you were called to, that you should inherit a blessing. And then he quotes the psalm, that you will experience um, God's eyes being upon you and his ears being open to your supplication. Back in chapter 2, Peter had exhorted his readers that because they were spoken against as evildoers, they must do good works which will lead their unbelieving accusers to glorify God Do good works which will silence the slander of their detractors. Uh, Chapter 2, verses 12 and 15. Having your behavior seemly among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Verse 15. For so is the will of God, that by well-doing you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now what kind of good works would these be? From verse 13 of chapter 2 on, and this is one of those cases where the chapter divisions get in the way of understanding the flow of the argument. From verse 13 on of chapter 2, Peter elaborates upon what those good works would be to silence the accusers. So that we might deal with the mistreatment of those who are outside and put them to shame. He says, be subject to the civil government. He goes on to say, servants, be subject even to evil masters. He goes on to say, suffer patiently and without retaliation. Beginning in chapter 3, wives, meekly and quietly submit to your husbands as Lord. Husbands, respect your wives' physical and spiritual equality. Having spoken about good works then in the realms of the state and employment and the family, I believe Peter now turns in verse 8 of chapter 3 to speak of harmonious life within the church. This is the last segment of the long explanation of good works that began way back in chapter 2, verse 13. Verse 8 begins with the words, and the end, you notice that? Finally, and the end of this, be all like-minded. Peter uses the word telos, the Greek word telos for end here. Telos is the goal of something. It's like the finish line of a race. It's the purpose or the aim that one has. So the end of the process, the telos of all this, Peter says, is that you should behave this way within the church. Peter is not simply bringing his discussion of good works to an end. He's reaching the point or the ultimate purpose of his discussion. How we should deal with mistreatment. How the peace of God upon us because we learn to live at peace with others. This is not your liberal message that uh, the love of God is just neighborly love and the peace of God is just peace between men. I wouldn't make that mistake, I trust, of reducing uh, the gospel and the supernatural message and the supernatural relationship that is being spoken of as peace to just good neighbor relations. But Peter does say that peace with God is tied to being at peace with our fellow men. And so in verse 8, we see a call to unity and mutual concern within the church. He speaks to the congregation. He calls the congregation, you all. Finally, you all be like-minded, compassionate, loving as brothers. He tells Christians how they should always treat each other, but especially how they should treat each other in times of persecution for righteousness' sake especially how they should treat each other when things are not going well or easy for the Christian congregation. He says, All of you be like-minded, compassionate, and love as brothers. Be tender-hearted and humble-minded. Our witness to the unbelieving world is weakened when unbelievers see us fighting with one another. When unbelievers see that we don't get along any better than their own families get along. When unbelievers see that as a social group, we have as many problems as any other human organization, there must be something distinctive, something that stands out about the Christian congregation. And in a word, it's peace that stands out. Elaborated upon in many ways here, but Peter says, If you would have peace from God and His face would be open to you, then you must learn to be at peace with each other. So Peter lays down five specific requirements of a life with, uh, of peace within the church. Uh, you might want to take a moment here in these five categories to give yourself a grade. We're not going to ask you to report that to everybody, but in all honesty, before God, ask yourself: How would I? How would I evaluate my own efforts as a member of Christian Concrete in terms of these five points? Am I a peacemaker? Peter says, first of all, be of one mind. In the Christian congregation, quarreling should stop. And it should be replaced with thinking in the same way. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone's to have some kind of thought regimentation where when you have a discussion of a difficult passage of Scripture or an awkward doctrinal point, that everyone just must you know, lock stuff into place. But you see, there is a spirit about the way we, we pursue um, questionable points in theology. There's a spirit of pursuit that shows that we are of one mind with one another, and that we are aiming for the same thing. Even if God has not, in His providence and in His grace, given in history complete unanimity yet to the Church, Especially within the local congregation. There should not be a spirit of quarreling about these things. The church should not be pulling against itself like some multi headed monster with every head wanting to do its thing. The church should have one mind. And how are we going to get that one mind as a congregation? Well, let's look at Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4. Philippians, the second chapter. And I'll read Paul's words beginning at verse 1. Paul says, If there is therefore any exhortation in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any tender mercies and compassions, make full my joy that you be of the same mind, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Doing nothing through faction or through vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, each counting the other better than himself. Not looking each of you to his own things, but each of you also to the things of others. If you would be of one mind, you must first be of a low mind. You must be low minded, humble. And the humble person has the servant's attitude of looking first to the needs of others. Can you imagine what any congregation... Can you imagine what this congregation would be like if every single member came to church and that was the most evident thing about them? A spirit of humility and wishing to serve the needs of others. We'd trip over each other trying to help each other out, wouldn't we? Be of one mind. Peter tells us as he goes on in his five-fold exposition of peace within the church. He says, be sympathetic. Not only must you think together, that is, be one-minded in the way you pursue things. Not only must you think together, he says, you must feel together. That's exactly what it says. Sympathy, that's what sympathy means, to feel the same thing as the other. We need mental and emotional unity. And that calls for sharing in the experiences of others. You can't have emotional unity with members of this congregation if you don't know what they're going through and if you don't care what they're going through. If when you come to church you're really kind of hoping you can keep at something of an emotional distance so you don't have to get involved and kind of tied down with what's happening in other people's lives. I know you have those feelings. We all do. There's a sense in which we say, I've really got enough. My life is full of emotional ups and downs right now. I don't need to share in more. And so we, we're kind of, you know, Christian anonymous when we come to church. We want to keep at a distance and, and, and be, as it were, anonymous. But Peter says when you come to worship in the congregation, not only must you think together, you must feel together. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And so make sure you get enough sleep the night before, and you don't just roll out of bed and into your car and down to church. Get up and come prepared so that you can emotionally yourself in rejoicing with people, and weep with those who weep. Be sympathetic with each other. Thirdly, Peter says, love his brothers. I know there are some parents who are saying, maybe that's not the best way to put it, Peter. But I I think even where there are examples of sibling rivalry and and maybe even something close to warfare within a family, that's part of growing up with children. I don't condone it in my children or yours, but we know we all go through that. Even when that happens, though, I think we all know what it is, what the ideal brother to brother, brother to sister, sister to sister relationship is supposed to be. And when Peter is telling us to love his brothers, of course, he's referring to that. What would a good brother do for his brother? Maybe I should put this, what would a good brother not do for his brother if his brother was in need? Let's turn tape over. at his time. That's the kind of love you need to have for each other. Fourthly, he says, be tender-hearted. The tender heart is one that feels what other people feel. It's all too easy to become indifferent and to become um, even callous to the troubles others are going through. You know, when prayer requests are given at church, I wonder if you have that experience, if you just kind of like these things click off, you know. It's one more thing, one more thing, one more thing. I almost wonder sometimes when we've heard, oh, seven, eight, nine minutes worth of prayer requests, and... Often the requests we hear are just so heart-tugging requests. How do we go on? How do we not just get on our knees and pray to God that he would help right then and there? Now, I mean, I know why in terms of our, our, our approach to worship, why we go on. But, I mean, there's just so much that our hearts are tender that listening to these prayer requests is an emotional experience. It can really weigh upon us. sensitivity to others has got to be cultivated and sought it's got to be set by a natural tendency to self-centeredness and that's why I think Peter's last exhortation about peace in the congregation has to do with humble-mindedness finally if you would be tender-hearted if you would love as brothers and feel together and think together you need to be humble-minded humility is not simply a matter of the mouth either And there are plenty of people, lots of people, who are self-centered and vain, who have learned the social skill of refraining from boasting in public, have learned that it's better for them not to, in some outward and verbal way, express their vanity or their pride. Peter's talking about an inner attitude, whether it comes to expression or not, an inner attitude of the humble person. It's not just a matter of how he appears to others but how he appears before God. And the humble person appears before God with a bowed head, realizing that he has nothing to offer and no good that he's accomplished that God has not accomplished. Therefore, he has nothing to be proud of. He only has plenty to thank God for and to praise Him for. Consider the attitude of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in Philippians 2. We just read Philippians 2 to help expound part of this attitude of uh, one-mindedness. Paul goes on in Philippians 2 to say of Jesus, Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, counted not being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient, even unto death, yes, the death of the cross. Humility is best exemplified in the one and only person in all of history who I think we could say did not need to be humble. The one genuinely could say he had the right to be praised and to speak his own did not, but rather poured himself out and poured himself out unto death to the very point of death for the sake of those whom he loved. That's the example of humility. So would there be peace in the church? And let's learn to think together. Let's learn to feel together, to be sympathetic, to love each other as brothers, to be tender-hearted toward each other, to be humble-minded. Recently, um, J.I. Packer in the book, The Pursuit of Holiness, wrote these words about a critical spirit. And and I must tell you before I share this with you that I'm sharing it with you today because um, I was myself so convicted when I read it and I I felt it was so appropriate to the theme of this message. Uh, But you you need to be very sure that I had to go through the agony of confessing my own sins before I share this with you. Uh, Really to the point. He says, One of the most difficult defilements of spirit to deal with is the critical spirit. A critical spirit has its root in pride. Because of the plank of pride in our own eye, we are not capable of dealing with the speck of need in someone else. We are often like the Pharisee who, completely unconscious of his own need, prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like all other men. We're quick to see and to speak of the faults of others, but slow to see our own needs. How sweetly we relish the opportunity to speak critically of someone else, even when we are unsure of our facts. We forget that one who spreads strife among brothers by criticizing one to another is one of the six things which the Lord hates, according to Proverbs 6. All of these attitudes, envy, jealousy, bitterness, an unforgiving and retaliatory spirit, and a critical, pinging spirit, defile us and keep us from being holy before God. They are just as evil as immorality, drunkenness, and debauchery. Therefore, we must work diligently at rooting out these sinful attitudes from our minds. Often we are not even aware our attitudes are sinful. We cloak these defiling thoughts under the guise of justice and righteous indignation. But we need to pray daily for humility and honesty to see these sinful attitudes for what they really are and then for grace and discipline to root them out of our minds and replace them with thoughts that are pleasing to God. So how did you do on your report card? On these five points, did you give yourself an A for your one-mindedness with the other members of our congregation? Give yourself a B plus maybe for your your sympathetic feeling, for your tender-heartedness? How did you grade yourself on acting as a brother or a sister to the fellow believers around you? For your sensitivity of heart and your humility of mind. Report cards usually have a needs to improve column, at least they do in elementary school. And um, if you're like me, I'm afraid most of my marks are in the Needs to Improve column, my report card. It would be good, I think, of each of us were to not simply hear this moral exhortation about peacefulness among uh, our brothers and sisters in the congregation and let it go at that. But I think each of us should think of, uh, let's say, three ways in which those characteristics could come to better expression in your own life. What could you do to be more tender-hearted? What could you do to be more like a brother or sister to the people around you? What could you do to be more sympathetic, to be more humble? And you think of even three things. The fact is, if you can't think of three ways in which you can do that, you probably aren't very humble. You probably aren't very sensitive and tender-hearted. You think of those three ways. I trust you are thinking of them now. Then you've got something to go out and do as a result of this message today. 1 Peter 3.8 then, Peter tells the church how peace is to be expressed there. And in verse 9, he goes on to say how we should respond to evil treatment when it comes to us. How should we respond when we don't have that kind of peaceful uh, treatment, that kind of loving and sympathetic and brotherly treatment from our uh, fellow believers? Or from those who are not believers and who would persecute us. What should we do when evil is expressed against us, when we are slandered or persecuted? And Peter's answer very simply is, you never respond with revenge. The pervasive biblical command is that we are to reply to insults, we are to reply to evil treatment, we are to reply even to persecution by doing good in return to those who are mistreating us. I think I've told you this before, if if not you, others have heard this in my ethical exhortations. As I look at what everything the Bible lays upon us to do, and there are so many things that are required of us as God's people, and I don't want to minimize the rest, but when I look upon all of the commands of Scripture, maybe it's just me speaking here, I tend to think this is the hardest of all, is to return good for evil. It's hard to keep, you know, all the other commandments. I don't doubt that. We all have a tendency toward wicked things, be they immorality or dishonesty or gossip or what have you. But I think the evil one works most efficiently and readily in me, perhaps in you too. When I've been treated ill, for me to think, well, then now it's perfectly all right to give it back in return. Because at that point, you see, it's tit for tat. Or eye for eye, tooth for tooth, I think, is to return. Injustice, in righteous indignation, to use J.I. Backer's words, you know, the same kind of treatment that I have received. I mean, it's just here that when Jesus tells me I'm to pray for my persecutors and those who evilly treat me, when I'm supposed to show love to my enemies, when Peter says in verse 9, Don't render evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but to the opposite effect, blessing. And he says, this is what you were called to, that you should inherit a blessing. That you should know what it is to respond as Jesus responds to mistreatment. What did Jesus do when people reviled against him? I mean, Jesus could have read them the riot act. Jesus saw right through his enemies. He knew their sins. He could have detailed them. He could have called judgment upon them. But Jesus, before his shearers, like a lamb, like a sheep, was dumb. He closed his mouth. He did not revile against him, But rather we find Jesus doing something that I find so hard to do. Praying for those who are crucifying him. And for their eternal good that God would forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. I think our tendency would be when people are crucifying us to say, God, get them. They deserve it. Well, they do. They do deserve it. Those who mistreated Jesus deserved it. But his response was that of humility and returning good for evil. Peter says, you're called to that kind of lifestyle. And we're promised a reward for living that kind of a lifestyle. We can learn to bless those who mistreat us. And if we learn to bless those who mistreat us, then we will have God's blessing upon us. And it's at this point that Peter now quotes Psalm 34, which takes us back to the beginning of today's message about the face of God. The psalm which Peter quotes, this point, indicates that the blessing that is to be received is a current present tense blessing, a present inheritance as God's people. It's not just their heavenly future that is being referred to. But in this life, if you would enjoy peace, length of days, and good life, then do what? Learn to refrain your tongue from evil. And your lips that they don't speak guile. Turn away from evil and do good. Pardon me. Seek peace and pursue it. And when we learn to seek peace with all men, within the congregation and even outside, those who persecute us, when we learn to be those that seek peace, then we'll finally stand in that position of God's people of old, with Jehovah's name being put upon us, and God's peace within us. To have God's peace, we must learn... For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears open to their supplication, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. When is it ever right to do evil? To be malicious toward another person? To speak in such a way as to be negative and to bring down their reputation? When is it ever right to return blow for blow, stripe for stripe, wound for wound? When is it ever right to do evil to another person? And the answer is never. The face of the Lord is against those that do evil. But his ears are open to the cries and prayers of those who do good and seek peace. And his eyes are upon them, and his face smiles in their direction. Christians are not troublemakers. They're not troublemakers inside the church, and they're not to be troublemakers outside the church. They've been called to be peacemakers. Jesus put it this way, blessed are the peacemakers. They're the ones that are the sons of God. And so do you enjoy peace? Are you a person who brings peace into your social environment with believers and outside the church with unbelievers? And do you enjoy the blessing of God for that, or... Do you find your life is weighed down with unhappy interpersonal relations? Do you have somebody within the church toward whom you should be changing your attitudes, changing your behavior and your actions? Are you engaged in an ongoing match of insults with somebody in this world or unkind actions or maybe just indifferent and cold behavior? Or do you have what Paul calls an Philippians, the second chapter, the mind of Christ. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself to the point of death in his humility. If you do, then you really are a blessed peacemaker. Then you do show that you're a son of the Most High, because you have his character within you. Peter tells us in quoting Psalm 34, there are two things that uh, we should refrain from doing two negative things and two positive things we need to be doing. He says, first keep your lips from deceit and then turn away from doing harm. When you go home, examine your life today during your time of reflection and devotion and prayer and ask whether your lips have been kept from deceit, whether you have lived up to the biblical exhortations about how to speak about one another and to one another. He says, turn away from doing harm. If you have lived in such a way that there is someone else suffering because of your behavior, your words or your attitudes toward them, turn away from it and positively do good and pursue peace. If you pursue peace, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears unto their supplication. But the face of the Lord is against them who do evil. If you would know the benediction of God and have the peace upon you, Peter says, learn to be a peacemaker. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you and ask you to grant us peace. We confess that we are often at a distance from you emotionally. We confess that we're often at a distance from you morally. Because we have not lived in a way that shows that we belong to you, that we are your children. We've lived according to worldly standards. We've lived according to our own selfish desires and our own way of responding to other individuals in this world. And Lord, we confess we've done this even within the very walls of the church. We have not been peacemakers. And yet we wonder at the fact that we don't enjoy a feeling of peace with you. Change our hearts today. Help us to see our sin, the way in which we stumble and make others stumble. Help us to see the way in which we have not been peacemakers. We have not been conducive to the harmony of the church. We have not responded to the insults or the persecution of those who are outside the church in a way that would make them look at us and say there is quite a difference. Do take away the retaliatory spirit that is in us all. Teach us to do that most difficult of tasks, to learn to bless those who insult us, to learn to love our enemies, to learn to care more for others and to be more humble-minded when we're with our fellow believers. Teach us to be peacemakers so that we would truly enjoy the peace that you bring us. We do ask that you would increase that feeling of peace. We pray that truly your face would be upon us. And that even now as we pray that we would have the assurance that your ears are open to us. That your eyes are upon us. And that you smile. Because we are trying to live like you would have us to live. We do beseech you for forgiveness where we have failed. And we look to you as well for strength to obey more exactly more consistently and with greater blessedness in our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Amen.